Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. Welcome to our new episode of Transportation Matters. My name is Martin Daum. I'm the CEO of Daimler Trucks and Buses, and I hope all of you are well and healthy. Thank you all very much for being with us again. Our topic today is how humanity is tackling the major global challenges of our times, challenges such as the corona pandemic or climate change. We want to discuss the key factors to solve such challenges, such as global collaboration, one of the great achievements of our time. Thanks to global collaboration, the well-being of billions of people around the world increased tremendously over the last decades. While this may seem obvious, collaboration and cooperation are not given anymore. Working together is being questioned and undermined. I'm therefore glad and humbled and honored that we got the perfect guest to dive into all of these questions today, Madeleine Albright. She was the first female Secretary of State in the history of the United States, serving her country from 1997 to 2001. And she has been busy ever after, just launching her latest book, Hell and Other Destinations. Madam Secretary, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to do this with you. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward. What do you think, uh, when reflecting upon the coronavirus, which dominates every headline, every media, would you say that this pandemic is the most serious challenge the world has met in the past 10, 20, 30 years? I actually do think that it's the most serious challenge because it happened very quickly and nobody was prepared. And you could argue, obviously, that nuclear proliferation has been the problem, but uh, we have set up a number of different systems to deal with it. You could say that climate change is the problem because it is, according to scientific proof. But the problem is that even though we know it will have a long-term effect, in a weird way, it's difficult because it isn't affecting people immediately. Whereas what's happened with the pandemic is it happened very quickly and it is affecting a lot of people. So I do think it's one of the biggest challenges that we've ever seen. You stated in one of your recent interviews, you stated clearly that it should be a wake-up call for world leaders to work together. What kind of collaboration would be necessary? Well, I do think that it is a wake-up call because the virus knows no borders. And I do think that one of the issues that we are looking at now is that, in fact, the international system of dealing with problems has some problems itself. I'm, I've been saying a lot that people and institutions in their 70s need refurbishing. And so we are looking at how the international system is not really coping with this, that the United Nations and the system need some fixing. I think the regional organizations need some fixing. And I do believe that the most important aspect of dealing with this is, as you've pointed out, is collaboration, cooperation. There's no way that one country can deal with this alone. Yes, and I would say it's clear because the virus don't respect borders. Uh, however, I see when I look at people and you put pressure on people, and that's in any system. And here, unfortunately, on the entire globe, there are two reactions. Either we huddle together to try to cope together or we separate because we have the feeling 
that alone I can make things easier happen. And unfortunately, I have the feeling in the moment we rather go for the separation path when I look at nations instead of the huddling together. I agree with you. And I've been trying to figure out why this has happened. Because as a professor and somebody that had been a practicing political leader, I think that there really have been two megatrends and their downside. And the first megatrend is globalization. We've all benefited by it in every single way we can talk about it. But the problem is that globalization is faceless and people want to know what their identities are. And that's fine. We all want to know where we come from and our identity. But if one identity hates another, it creates nationalism and hypernationalism is very dangerous. And we have seen that. And so I think that's one thing why you think, well, I'm just going to do this alone. Why should I cooperate with uh, my neighbor next door? And the second mega trend is technology, which has been incredible in uniting us in a number of ways and making life easier. But it has also disaggregated voices. And so nobody knows where their information's coming from. And I think we were not prepared for this part of the 21st century. It's an interesting remark because for me, it was too, too long self-understanding. Uh, Daimler Trucks and Buses, we are a global company. Uh, we have more than 100,000 people around the globe. And when I say global, it's not that we are a German company or an American company. We are an American company in the U.S., we're a German company in Germany, a Mexican company in Mexico, and we collaborate just normally. Yeah? Nation does not matter. They are part of our family. And then suddenly it comes from the outside. So it was for us all a kind of a shock when suddenly borders had been closed and things got weird and difficult. Because I can speak for all the 100,000 people working with us. For us, one global world was the norm. There's no question. And I do think that it's obvious in terms of seeing Daimler and various parts of your company everywhere. And you have thrived by being a global company. And yet businesses have been disrupted. Uh, I, I understand that Daimler had to close most of its factories in Europe. And yet the private sector has also been critical in helping to fight. Um, and Daimler has made uh, really incredible innovations. For example, uh, by building 3D printers that can produce medical equipment and face shields and all kinds of things. And I do think, I hope that collaboration will continue when we get back to whatever the normal is going to be. Yeah, and I hope so too. And I uh, I got recently, or recently was last year, a very powerful message from our people back when we looked for a global culture experience. And I was at the beginning a, a little bit skeptical whether we can combine Japan and, and Brazil and Germany and the United States uh, to one culture. And one of the remarks one, from one of the employees was for me so telling. He said, Martin, what motivates people and what frustrates people is universal. There is no difference. And I would say that's the same thing now in this crisis. What makes us happy and what makes us fearful is just the same and it doesn't matter which nationality we have. So I hope that this, this understanding that we are all humans, that this is what unites us and this is much more powerful than what unites us and what separates us, the passport or the gender or the age. That is not important. We are human. This is, in my opinion, the message which we all have to bring to the world. I so agree with you. Um I'm probably going to say this a number of times while we talk is 
you know, it's a cliche, but every crisis is also an opportunity. And it does make us realize the commonality of being a human being and of dealing with issues of disease and death and how to prevent it. And so I do hope that we can take this as a a real lesson in terms of what has to happen and find some uh, positive aspects to this. And there is no better way to do it than through, um, I I do think, um, the role of the private sector in many ways, the combination of the private sector working with the public sector. That's been one of my major interests now, are public-private partnerships. And how can that happen? I remember a lot of things in the past where we got criticized was that the lobbyists are taking over uh, politics, which I always thought is not true. How would you see that collaboration between private sector and the public sector? Well, I'm, I'm very glad we're going in this direction because I've thought about this for a long time. I have believed maybe since even the 80s, when I was teaching, having been in the Carter administration, that the private sector needed to be at the table much earlier, where um, there are international meetings of some kind or conferences where it is divided according to whether they're government representatives or private sector representatives. And I think it's absolutely essential that the private sector be there at the beginning and not be brought in later when, in fact, a lot of the decisions have been made. The issue here is the following. What are the rules by which the world operates at any given time? Who makes up the rules? And I think that the private sector has to be there as a stakeholder or as a participant early on in order to be part of the rulemaking because you have to carry out the rules. And so public-private partnership. Partnership is the I think, important word. But that means partnership means understanding that both sides understands what the other wants. Partnership does not mean I get what I want. I have to understand what the other side needs. And that if both sides look at that, then it should work at the end of the day. Very much so. And I think you mentioned I was a teacher and I do teach about um, decision making. And what I tell my students is that it's absolutely essential to be able to get into the other person's shoes, to understand where they're coming from. And and I think that that is not a matter of saying, we disagree about everything, I don't like what they're doing, but it's important to know there's no way, and I underline that, to solve the problems of this day without that public-private partnership. And let me just say, it scares people to think that I learned something when I was already Secretary of State, but what happened was I was invited to come out and talk to some of the technical people in Silicon Valley. And I was talking about what the government could do. And they said, well, the government can't help us. And I said, excuse me, you need the government in order to get market access and talk with other countries' governments. And then the opposite happened when I went somewhere and gave a speech and there was a huge audience and I learned nothing. And so I asked to meet with the representatives of our American corporations at the time to see what they knew about a country. And they had a very different approach from the diplomats. So I came back and I established a prize at the State Department where I said, and this was to honor corporations that were good local citizens, because I think that there is a way that we need to work together on solving the problems. Really, really great. And and I think this is 
something we have to keep in mind. And I look at the other big challenge, and you mentioned that at the beginning, it's certainly climate change. And what I realized in the last year where, where we get much closer uh, in cooperation with the policymakers is when we stopped just whining and, and defending the status quo and when the politics side started to understand the difficulties we have with this transformation and our customers have because CO2-free driving is definitely more expensive than burning carbon. There is a reason why do we do carbon burning today. And I think the moment the politics understood that we have to solve that efficiency problem from our customers and we understood that we have to do our share and, and, and provide technologies that solve the problem, that moment I would say something snapped positively and changed for the better. I agree. And I do think that the auto sector has an awful lot to contribute. I mean, because you are out there, you see the, what is going on. And in terms of what can be done to support the growth of the industry without sacrificing the environment. So I do think that you need to be continue to be a part of putting your ideas on the table and thinking about what needs to be done. By the way, I have been friends with Joschka Fischer for a very long time when we were ministers together. But he's somebody that has been interested in sustainability from the very beginning of his active political life. And so I think he's a good example of the public-private aspect of that. Yeah, and I had a very engaged discussion with him. And we, I would say we agreed in about uh, 60% or 70% of the topics. And we had in the other 30% a disagreement. But I think this is a, the necessary disagreement where you then reach better solutions on both sides. I don't think we should be afraid of disagreements, by the way. I think that they have to be voiced with re and then received with respect and then try to figure out what the solution is. That's why I think one of the main themes of, of what I, you said at the beginning and I agree with is collaboration, cooperation, problem solving. That's what has to happen. And we had that just recently the experience where we announced a big joint venture with one of our competitors to to push and force uh, the fuel cell technology. That means uh, propelling tra heavy trucks with hydrogen. Now, this is a leap of faith. We believe that we, when we are ready with our products, the public sector has the infrastructure ready so our customers can... Uh, can, can refuel with hydrogen. And that was, for me, the important step. We decided not to wait, but clearly say, state what we are doing and just trusting that the other side is coming up with a solution, which we can't provide. Well, I do think this goes back to what I said at the beginning, is that the private sector needs to be at the table early. So it isn't all of a sudden that you've developed something and the public sector doesn't have any clue or understand it and immediately thinks, oh, no, as you pointed out, it's just lobbying. Let's let's move a little bit to your personal experience. It's always great to talk to someone with such a rich, rich experience. And when I was reading through your book, I came across of several passages which just fascinated me. But I really love when you said, you describe yourself as a problem solver. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that? Well, it's interesting. Recently, I was asked to describe myself in six words. And so I said, worried optimist, problem solver, and grateful American. And so uh, I do think that it is very important as you look at a problem to think, what are the ways to be able to find 
some solution, that it doesn't do any good to get mad or walk away from the table or think that the other side is totally wrong um, and to try to solve a problem. And it goes back to something I said earlier is you need to put yourself into the other person's shoes on the other side of the table and try to find what you have in common rather than thinking that everything has to be a zero-sum game. And I, and I like that you put in Grateful American as one of your traits because you might answer me that question because I there was always this make America great again was a pretty controversial sentence. And I always asked back and said, and what does this mean? Yeah, we, we always talk about the phrase. We never talk about the content. What America do we want to be great? And I, and I gave sometimes as a foreigner more answers than I heard from Americans. How would you as an American answer that question? Well, I am um, a peculiar American because I wasn't born here. And I often think of myself as kind of the epitome of the U.S.-European relationship. I was born in Prague. In 1937, and I have been a refugee twice, once during World War II and the second time after the communists took over Czechoslovakia. And so uh, I have to say that I am grateful to be able to have uh, a life where I was able to do what I thought was important. My father, uh, who had been a Czechoslovak diplomat, when he came to the United States said, there is nothing better than to be a professor in a free country. And I do think that for me, it has been an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, now, I do think that there always this question as to whether America is uh, for exceptionalism. I do think there's something special about America in terms of its diversity, but we can't ask that exceptions be made for us, that we will not work with others. And being an American, I think, from my perspective, is to be uh, a partner not a dominant force that doesn't listen to others. And I don't think I happen to believe in an America that has moral values, that believes in diversity, that is willing to help others and doesn't think that it's always right. And you picked that up in your book at several parts. And I, and I liked when you described your time at the uh, chairing the National Democratic Institute and you defined democratic culture. And for me, it was always democracy, just the ruling of the 51% over the 49%. But you answered it completely different. You said democracy is a society where people honor each other's dignity and it because it feels natural and appropriate to do so. And I think that was a Absolutely eye-opener for me. This is truly, this is democracy. It is. And by the way, I, I just want to tell you, when the National Democratic Institute started, which was something by President Reagan, and we were trying to sort out how a party institute really worked, we did look to the Stiftungs, uh, the German model in terms of political parties having institutes that worked on behalf of democracy uh, in a number of different countries, and that democracy isn't just an American concept. There are other countries that one has to and wants to work with that are functioning democracies. But why is it so difficult to get that concept in everybody's heads and minds and living it day to day? Why is it not? Why sometimes has the world the feeling that it just goes the other direction? Well, I, I do think I'm going to sound like a professor for a minute. Sorry, which means longer answers. But basically, I think that what had happened is that there were divisions. There are always divisions in society. Um, and some of them have to do with uh, economic issues, some on uh, religious issues, uh, some just generally on, on social issues. And what you try to do 
is have a social contract where people understand what the government is supposed to do and what their responsibilities are. And that kind of broke down because I don't think we fully understood the impact of technology and jobs lost and divisions on that. But when you then find rulers who, instead of trying to find some common answer, just make the differences worse, exacerbate them, and try to identify with one group at the expense of another, then it moves to authoritarianism, uh, which is the opposite of democracy. And that's what I'm troubled by now, is that we're seeing some of that where there's anger, there are economic divisions, and then countries that or leaders that take advantage of it to divide people even more. And so that is one of the things we're dealing with now when, as you and I have been now saying, what needs to happen is cooperation and collaboration and not divisions. And democracy, frankly, is based on compromise and coalitions, not always having your own way. Yep, but this is exactly the difficulty. And for me, comes on top of it, to destroy something is always much easier than to build something up. No question. But I have to tell you, frankly, and you asked me about the Grateful American, I'm very troubled by what is going on now. And I say this, I said earlier that I was kind of the epitome of the Euro-Atlantic relationship. Uh, and so it allows me to say what I think about both sides. And the relationship between the U.S. and Europe is a mess. That's a diplomatic term of art. In, instead of doing things together uh, to uh, respond to the pandemic or uh, talk about sustainability or how we deal with China, uh, we're getting further and further apart. And and I think the United States is absent. And I think that there are a couple of examples. I gather that the EU is going to host a major conference to fund healthcare response and research on the vaccine. And ever since World War II, the United States would be a co-host and working closely with the EU. And I don't see that happening. I mean, it's unprecedented. And so I'm very, very worried about that. And then another thing, for instance, uh, French President Macron is pushing for a global ceasefire endorsed by the Permanent Five and the UN Security Council. And that would be very, very important. But now the United States is opposed to this because it says something about China or the World Health Organization. So I think we are a very bad example at the moment. And for me, as somebody who want, has a sense of a grateful American, I think it's very sad. Yes, and even Bill Gates, another great American, said pandemic and climate change are challenges that no country can solve on its own, not even the richest one. And I think this is exactly a very true statement. And that, that's, for me, the reason to collaborate. So what can we do, we as companies, and I definitely voice that as a leader of a large global company, but what can we all do, what can the listeners do to get that message really across well, I, I do think, obviously, um, in many of the things that our leaders say, but what people, what you and the rest of people that can do is really what we need to work with, uh, Americans need to work with European allies, is to keep the economies open uh, with the central banks, which, which actually are working together pretty well. But we should work with the international institutions that exist, like the IMF and the World Bank, to keep the economies working. We need to, and you are doing this, is share health information and equipment because what we're learning is how intertwined we are and that together we can make what we need and we can't recover until people and goods can move around. And that's not going to happen if we don't uh, share information. And then I do think 
and again, you've been involved in a lot of this, is to create and distribute medicines and vaccines. And so we need to figure out what are the practical things we can do that people will see right away. And then the ones that are more kind of talking about where the international system should be going, which goes back to what we said earlier about public-private partnerships. And the real challenge is still coming to us, and that is how we support and help the developing world. Because we, at the moment, we focus to keep the, uh, the factories running in the United States and in Japan and in Germany. But we have factories in Indonesia and in Brazil and in South Africa. And I tell you, we live in heaven compared to what those countries are currently going through. Well, I think uh, you've raised, again, a very important point. What I think is very hard for every country is to, when there are problems, then to tell people that the security and health of one's own country in many ways depends on what's happening in other countries, that the world is interconnected, whether we like it or not. And therefore, what does happen uh, in places that some people can't find on the map um, are actually very important to each country's uh, health. And that, especially true with the virus, which definitely knows no borders, as we've said, but also in terms of supply lines and the way that our system has been working. And one can do good things for humanitarian reasons, but also for very pragmatic and practical reasons, which show that we need to uh, work together. And therefore, I am worried about where the next steps are coming and what happens in the developing world, which frankly does not have the kind of infrastructure that European and Americans have in terms of healthcare systems or delivery systems, or even in America's case, where at the moment we seem disorganized, we have been capable of planning. And that is sometimes a problem in some of the other countries. Now, when you were describing yourself as the six words, you used the first two were worried optimist. Now, we talked a lot about the worry. Now, what's about the optimism? And what's about the optimism when it comes to the U.S., the international organizations, the corona pandemic, and climate change? Could you give us an optimist outlook on all of those four topics? Well, I'm always asked whether I'm a pessimist or an optimist. And so automatically I say optimist, and then I slowly say, but I worry a lot. But but basically I am an optimist because, you know, we all are the products of our own lives. And I was raised in a way that one can, that one's mood is something that you control, how you how you look at the world. And I am somebody who thinks that If you get the right people together and the right organizational structure and you push, and especially, and this goes back to the cliche of a crisis can be an opportunity, that there really are ways to figure out how to work together. But it requires people to have that sense to go back to our theme of cooperation to understand that no country today can solve a problem alone, which requires the kind of respect. And I am an optimist, and I'll tell you why now because um, of our young people. I do teach. I'm very impressed with their understanding of international cooperation, of their uh, capability of networking, of understanding the technology, and the fact that they know that they're going to have to create the new normal and that 
the field of international affairs is now so much larger in terms of not just being about political science and history, and but being about economics and science and healthcare and production and all kinds of different aspects for looking at it. So the reason I'm an optimist is because it's my nature, but also because I have enjoyed very much my opportunities to being with young people and seeing their way of thinking. Absolutely great. And I think these are great last words. Thank you so much, Madam Secretary, for taking us on that journey. And thanks to everyone out there for coming along. Thank you for your good questions. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I'm sorry that we had to do that via the internet and not face-to-face. -face. I would have loved to continue. And there was certainly a lot of other things we could talk about. So thanks for joining us today. I have to add one word. I'm sitting in the middle of Washington, D.C., and in front of my house is a very large Mercedes truck with uh, ladders on top of it. And it's there every morning. So I think about what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And they are there because someone needs it, you know, and needs a job to be done. And this keeps the world moving. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. That was Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. If you enjoyed what you've heard, share this episode and subscribe to Transportation Matters on your preferred podcast platform. You can do this by tapping the follow or subscribe button right next to the podcast title. Our next episode will be available on the first Wednesday of next month. Meanwhile, please check out another Daimler podcast, Headlights. It provides insights and unique stories from Daimler employees. 